I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, a podcast where we pick an obscure topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Bella Thorne. Who is Bella Thorne? Well, she's a former Disney Channel megastar who had the patented take me seriously and allow me to transition out of being a child, goddammit, overly sexualized left turn into adulthood that so many women in the performing arts are forced to take. She's one of the most followed people on the internet, with legions of fans and millions of social media acolytes. She's a singer, a published author, a poet, and perhaps the person who forever changed the way the internet monetizes celebrity. Speaking Spanish in the Suburbs One of the reasons that the American populace has so publicly struggled with a rapidly shifting America is because it's so directly reflected in a digital tapestry of our everyday existence. You can't put your head in the sand and ignore it. It will follow you from social platform to social platform, reminding you exactly what is happening. The country that currently exists and is occupied by millions of people is being reshaped and remade by a select few companies. Algorithms, pay-per-click campaigns, and viral content are remolding the features of our national identity. In an added twist, these companies usually offer goods and services, free of charge. They purport to make your life easier, to solve a simple need you have, to facilitate human connection, to allow you access to information, or to better acclimate you to a specific environment. But the tax they're taking is information, the ineffable and ethereal coin of the realm. Data. Every decision you make, tracked, collated, measured, and taxed. These companies are literally mining life. And with that information, they're subtly dictating how it is being reshaped and re-evolved into something completely unknowable to us all. Yet, it's easy to understand how certain sects of the population are nostalgic for a simpler time. Because even if you're not aware of how different things are, It's glaringly apparent that things are very different, and they're more than likely to never return to the way things were. Even if you're not consciously meditating on it, you're consistently being reminded in sleight-of-hand measures of how branding, intellectual property mining, and technological advancements are rapidly reshaping everything, everywhere, all of the time. And just because you're not aware of the intricacies and the ones and zeros of how these technologies are warping our everyday life, that doesn't mean that they don't manifest themselves in decidedly tangible ways. Think about how your annoying cousin knows about what IP is, and which superheroes are canonical to the MCU, and why. What Fortune 500 companies have gone bankrupt this year, and why it's unnerving to have an Alexa or a Google Home enabled, or to have Siri listening to you all the time. How existentially haunting is it to know that you're constantly building a digital ghost that one day will come back to haunt you? It's not a matter of if, but when. These concerns swirl in our brains. They're not just relegated to theoretical physicists or nerdy bespectacled dudes in the backs of libraries. That annoying cousin of yours knows exactly why Ben Affleck's version of Daredevil wasn't in the MCU. And 
He even knows why Mark Zuckerberg's IPO was such a shit show. Largely because everyone does. Everyone is plugged in and living a life that's defined by tectonic plate shifts that come once every couple years. We're all living along the fault lines of AT&T and Viacom and Disney and Facebook and Apple. To make it even more surreal, everyone is aware of it, doesn't like it, and yet no one has a real choice. The system is all-encompassing and all-devouring, and even if you are someone who wants to be self-aware enough to rebel against it, what's the point? You can't change the system, so fuck it, let's all just take part in this long-form performative act of wasting our lives and enjoy the sense of anonymity and brief bliss of being sucked up into the machine of the great American experience. The only thing that's better than safely railing against the system from our lazy boy 9000s is when there's a nude leak or a sex tape that's dropped. We're not too proud to go seek out our favorite celebrity's most private moments, right? We just want tangible proof that there is a fleeting humanity out there somewhere. A carefully constructed, branded internet persona, fragile and capable of being literally naked, and spiritually naked, as are we. Just for 15 minutes, we want the gods from Mount Hollywood to dismount and give us proof that they're as flawed and broken as the rest of us. Even if it is technically illegal and violates every moral code of privacy and good taste. Who cares? They have stacks of money and vaults filled with gold coins to Scrooge McDuck into that will calm their existential torment. Besides, it's not like there's a site that just gives away the private lives of celebs and normal people for nominal fees. There's no site on the internet that has found a way to position itself directly adjacent to the porn and adult entertainment industries so as to not literally be exclusively for porn. But also its brand persona is just a wink and an elbow nudge away from that, right? Right? No, what's this? A site called OnlyFans. Huh. OnlyFans is a site owned by Leonie Radvinsky. The company launched in 2016. They're headquartered in London. What's the purpose of OnlyFans? Well, as they say, their defined modus operandi is OnlyFans is a content subscription service based in London, England. Content creators earn money for users who subscribe to their content. The site is very popular within the sex working industry and the adult entertainment industry, as it provides a way for people with a little bit of celebrity to offer a premium content at an affordable cost. It allows individuals in an industry renowned for its strip mining of agency to reclaim personal power and, you know, pay rent. It happens to host a bevy of other performers and creative types, but the reality is the brand's public perception is it's a site that lets you pay nominal fees to watch private content of adult actors or low-level celebrities looking for a bump. Think Selena Powell, and yeah, sex workers, which is cool, and messy-ass people mostly like Selena Powell, which is less cool. There are two ways you can support people on OnlyFans. You can pay a monthly fee to access someone's page, or you can pay, in air quotes, tips for someone's pay-per-view content. Most people charge between $5 and $50 for their monthly subscription fee, with pay-per-view content being anywhere from 10 to multiple hundreds of dollars. The business model for OnlyFans is as follows. A subscriber, aka a fan, gives a monthly payment through OnlyFans for access to the previously mentioned adult content. What happens after that? The company 
pays 80% of the fees collected to the creator. It takes 20% as a servicing fee. OnlyFans started as a site in 2016. The site originally launched as a way for influencers to profit off the content they'd normally share for free. The site was owned originally by Phoenix International Limited, a company which very little is known about. In October of 2018, Leonid Redvinsky, the guy behind My Free Cams, another sex worker site, became owner of 75% of Phoenix International Limited. He took over as director of the company in November of 2018. The site quickly became notorious for, well, exactly what it was, a way for adult entertainers to profit off the work and to not give the lion's share of their earnings to outdated business models that rely on things like DVD sales and live performances. Today, many sex workers and porn stars work in the traditional side of things briefly, realize how awful and predatory it is, and then strike out on their own. Some use sites like MyFreeCams or Pornhub as distribution methods, coupled with the social media following in order to gain the widest reach possible and, hopefully, make ends meet. However, this doesn't always happen. Sex work is highly stigmatized in the States. On April 25th of 2020, BuzzFeed ran an article that just went viral. It chronicles the story of Kristen Vaughn, 24, who was purportedly on track to become the first woman master technician at Don Aries Honda dealership in Fort Wayne, Indiana. However, she was abruptly let go. Why? Because her colleagues discovered that she had an OnlyFans site, paid for access to it, and then collectively watched it. At work. Yes, that's right. These men were engaging in consuming illicit materials at the workplace, and the woman was let go. In a recording of her being confronted by her boss, he can be heard saying, if there were any co-workers who had access to your page, that might encourage them to approach you with unwanted sexual conduct or comments. Literal victim blaming. Who would have thought a country founded on the back of puritanical white dudes would have a few issues around sex that their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren would still be dealing with? It's even more fucked up than that, too, because it's not even it's not even just like that's not Puritanism or, or traditional Puritanism. That is somebody existing in a culture where these things have become more sensitive and the, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace has become, you know, more of a national conversation and it's become more cracked down upon and, you know, people are doing more to sort of punish it or you know, not tolerate it. And within that cultural revolution and that conversation going on, for somebody to, instead of taking away from that, oh, like I need to, you know, conduct myself differently, or I need to set a better example for employees to conduct themselves differently, or I have to work in instilling systems within my company to educate people on these things. Instead, they take away like, oh, like I don't want to get me too'd. It's not about like, oh, this is a problem. I need to become more sensitive, educate myself better and learn how to solve this problem. Instead, it's like it's a, it's a it's a completely corporate liability mechanism where in which you're just acting in your own best interest of not wanting to get in trouble. So, you know, you would do something like this, which is it's the it's the most efficient way to solve the problem. Just fire the the girl that in a, in a lot of ways to me, that's worse than just traditional fundamental sort of puritanism one nation under god who doesn't approve of doing dirty things even though you have a biological imperative to do so that you can't help so you know just 
feel bad all the time and lash out at other people. It, it's cool. God would much rather have you be judgmental and small rather than understanding, you know, not everyone lives according to your worldview. It's cool, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. As an added factor to this conversation, abuses surrounding OnlyFans age policies have been constant for nearly its entire existence. Also in April of 2020, BBC Three filmed a documentary about how people are getting around age of consent laws. And they found that over one third of Twitter users on a single day offering hashtag nudes for sale were using OnlyFans, and that many of them were underage. The way American culture absorbs men and women is distinctly different. Men are expected to comport themselves with a traditional sense of masculinity, have a career, and theoretically just be a productive member of society. Those are the basics of what is expected. Nowhere in there is there any real emphasis placed on their physical appearance. Women? Decidedly the opposite. They are expected to be attractive, and then adhere to a long list of emotionally taxing expectations that, nine times out of ten, literally are unachievable. But their primary distinguishing attribute is their physical appearance. This is almost an unwinnable game. There was a neurological study done several years ago where they monitored brain function of people interacting with men and women and when people interacted with and spoke to and observed men, the social communication area of the brain fired up. And when people interacted with women, even other women, the interacting with objects area of the brain fired. So fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> that's so fucked. And that's, and that's just like, that, that is, that is at a deeply societal level if it's everybody if it's even women cast your mind back to the mid-2000s when megan fox a stunningly beautiful woman who was smart driven had climbed her way all the way up hollywood's pecking order at the young age of 22 or whatever and was almost burned at the stake for having toe thumbs toe thumbs that's what we're concerned about the experience of an american woman is distinctly different from an american man one filled with external forces telling you your body isn't good enough. An experience that, especially for those women who pursue careers in the public eye, is one that is constantly commodified and sold for sex appeal. Which is something that Bella Thorne was reminded about her whole life. Do, 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 do. Demon humming songs that he only knows from his planet that humans don't recognize. Oh, hey, Dave. Uh, do you by any chance happen to have any more of those uh, pixie box book things that you make or whatever? Hey, Hillsmer, uh, you mean comics? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, well, I don't have any with me right now, but I do have two new comic book series that are starting up. Uh, I wrote a Star Trek series, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, which comes out November 11th. And the way the comic book industry works is that you have to pre-order comics in order to make sure that the stores order enough. If you wanted to pre-order it, you would go to a comic book store or go online and use the code SEP200455. I also have a creator-owned series coming out November 25th called Night Hunters with artist Alexis Zirit, which is about two brothers in Grand Caracas, 100 years in the future, one of which becomes a cop, one of which becomes a drug dealer, and they have to fight their way through the seedy underbelly of the dystopian Venezuelan police state, which you could pre-order with the code SEP201264. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, 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 great. Cool, cool, cool. That uh, sounds amazing. Love it. Love everything that every word that you just said. Uh, I'll take whatever. 50? 
Really? Wow. I didn't know, uh, I didn't know you read comics, Hilsmer. Oh, you're supposed to read them? There's a thing about space demons where when it's the summertime, we actually get very cold instead of hot. So I was actually just looking for some kind of kindling for the fire in the living room. Oh, that explains what that bonfire was. That was a sex thing. <laughs> Bella Thorne was bullied as a child. She was small and quiet and half Cuban and spoke Spanish, making her a target in the suburbs where she grew up. To compound the matter, she also lost her father at a young age due to a horrible traffic accident. She struggled to perform well in school due to an undiagnosed case of dyslexia. Annabella Avery Thorne was born on October 8, 1997 in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Her parents, Tamara Thorne and Delancey Ronaldo Ray Thorne, had four children in total, Bella being the youngest, the others being Danny Thorne, Kaylee Thorne, and Remy Thorne. They're all also actors. She and her three siblings were raised by a single mother after the untimely death of her father. She has said before that she originally started working as a child in order to support her family. There's a dark side to child acting where parents live off of their children. This appears to be exactly what happened to Bella Thorne. She was diagnosed with dyslexia when she was in first grade. She was homeschooled after attending public school for being bullied. Thorne began her modeling career very young, like very, very young, like six months old young. She went on to appear in over 30 commercials, Neutrogena, Texas Instrument, and a bevy of others, including Guest Jeans, Tommy Hilfiger, and Ralph Lauren. She graced the covers of Teen Vogue, Seventeen, Cosmo Girl, and Elle. Her first breakthrough film role came in Entourage, and then in The O.C., she played the younger version of Taylor Townsend. In 2007, she joined the cast of Dirty Sex Money in its second season. This was her first major recurring role. In 2008, she starred in My Own Worst Enemy, a short-lived TV show starring Christian Slater and Taylor Lautner. It was quickly canceled. Canceled before I ever heard of it. Because I've literally <laughs> I, never I heard remember, of that. I remember seeing the billboard, but that's about it. Like, I, I never watched it. Her star-making turn, though, came in the form of CeCe Jones, a dancer with ambitions for a massive career in the Disney Channel show Shake It Up. This show co-starred Bella Thorne and Zendaya. It ran for a total of three seasons. Thorne has also had a successful music career, releasing three albums. Made in Japan, released in 2012, Jersey, released in 2014, and What Do You See Now in 2020. From here, Bella segued into a career as a 20-something-year-old female lead. She starred in the Scream TV series reboot and numerous other projects. I feel just... This... This... <laughs> This description is making me feel so old because, first of all, I only know about Bella Thorne's existence. I had no idea where she was from. I don't know any of these shows. I mean, I, I mean, I know them. I, I know that there was a Scream TV show that was on MTV for several years. I literally never watched a single episode of it. I didn't know anybody who was on it. And I don't know. I just I don't know any of these things. You want to you want a Disney Channel? Fan, bro, come on, bro. I mean, Shake it up, come on. I, I, I fell off at Camp Rock. That was my last <laughs> hurrah. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I knew, said I knew most of these things too. I mean, I, I'm aware of maybe a little bit more than you, but not much. Like, I, I basically just knew like, oh yeah, she was in that Disney show. I couldn't have told you the name though. Around this time, she started dating Greg Sulkin, approximately from 2015 to 2016. After they broke up, she came out as bisexual. 
Later, she began a polyamorous relationship with musician Maud Sun and media personality Tana Mongook. Her fourth book was about to be released when she was blackmailed after her nudes were stolen by a hacker. Here is an ET piece about the fallout. I don't really want to be beaten down by a bunch of older women for my body. Bella Thorne in tears over Whoopi Goldberg's reaction to sharing her own nude photos online. You cannot be surprised that someone has hacked you, especially if you have stuff on your phone. I'm not going to lie. I, I want to say that I feel pretty disgusting. You know, I feel pretty disgusting, Whoopi, knowing everyone's seen, like, you know, my sh- on Tuesday's episode of The View, the talk show host admitted she isn't exactly on the former Disney star's side. While discussing Bella's decision to release nude photos of herself in order to take her power back after an alleged hacker got a hold of them. If you're famous, I don't care how old you are, you don't take nude pictures of yourself. Bella spoke out in a series of emotional Instagram stories Tuesday after the episode aired. Watching this interview made me feel really bad about myself, and I, and I hope you're happy. I really do. I really hope you're so f-ing happy, because I can only imagine all of the kids who have um, their sh- released, and then they commit suicide. Once you take that picture, yeah. it goes into the cloud, and it's available to any hacker who wants it. And if you don't know that in 2019, mm. that this is an issue... You, you, I'm sorry, your age does not, you don't get to do that. Bella revealed she'd be canceling her scheduled interview with The View after Whoopi's shameful comments. In a lengthy statement posted on her IG stories, Bella wrote to Whoopi in part, I'm offended for anyone out there who has ever taken a sexy photo. I'm offended for Jennifer Lawrence, who feels publicly raped. Your view on this matter is honestly awful. Like, are you serious right now? This is crazy. Bella shared the nude images to her Twitter account on Saturday in a series of screenshots, which appear to show the alleged hacker texting her the private photos of herself. At the time, Bella revealed the hacker is being investigated by the FBI and added the incident made her feel gross and watched during a time she should be celebrating. I feel like... I'm lost over here. Bella just released her fourth book, The Life of a Wannabe Mogul, Mental Disarray, Volume 1, which contains poems chronicling her personal struggles, relationships, and wild child lifestyle. If you don't like it, f*** you. If you don't like it, fuck you, Dave. I tell you that every uh, day. I mean, that's true, you do, but it's more of a, it's more of like a coquettish kind of like playful tone with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So there, there are two things I want to talk about with this. One, it sucks that this happened to her, that her, her phone got hacked and these photos that she took got taken and this person was trying to blackmail her with them. That's awful. It really, really sucks. There are some people who say that this never happened and that Bella Thorne staged this blackmailing. I personally don't really think that's true, but that is a thing that people have said. Is there any evidence for that? I think it's just people being upset that she's so famous, yeah, honestly. Yeah, because I mean that just sounds like that just sounds like the conspiracy theory that anybody would make up for any of these things. Like literally anytime something happens to a celebrity, there are a group of people who believe something like this about it. Yeah, it really it really sucks and it's super sad and I wish that stuff like this didn't happen to people because it's really it's really frustrating when you want to have this private life and you just can't. And that sucks. And if fucking Bellathorn wants to be able to take photos of her boobs and send it to somebody, fuck it. She should be able to do that without 
having every single human on earth be able to see it. I understand the, the core emotion of what Whoopi Goldberg was saying, which is that like when you have a following the size of somebody like Bill Thorne, you have to be very cautious and you have to place pragmatism over everything because there are people who are looking to get you. And, yeah, I mean um, that's 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 the core that's the core argument. It's pragmatism versus idealism, which is like you you should be able to feel comfortable doing whatever you want in the privacy of your own home slash technology, the privacy of your own hard drives, without the fear that somebody's going to hack you and and leak your private photos. Because you know nobody would do that to a normal person a non-celebrity unless you know a specific situation where like an ex-boyfriend is like trying to fuck with you or something it would have to be a very specific thing it wouldn't just be like a random stranger hacking you and hoping you have nude photos or whatever so you've opened yourself up to the scrutiny and that's really psychologically traumatizing it's a specific part of a bigger narrative which is just the idea of celebrity in general and the the good that comes with it along with the bad which is like you know once you get to a certain level of celebrity celebrity it's just like you can't walk outside anymore you can't go to a store. It's an experience which we cannot really fathom what that feels like. And I think a lot of people want to sort of cast judgments on that and be like, oh, that's what they signed up for whenever they became a celebrity. And they have so much money that they don't need to care about things like that. But you'll just you you'll never be able to f- understand how it feels. And I'm not even saying that in any kind of charged way. I'm not I, I'm not saying that, like, it's incredibly hard for them and it's it's wor- it's just as bad or worse as any of the problems that normal people face but i'm also not saying that it's not that uh i'm saying that we cannot understand we just are not in a place in our lives to put ourselves in that in those shoes and experience that subjectively especially when there's somebody who has the amount of attention that is heaped on someone like bella thorne who we're going to get to in a second but who basically you know they tr- she transitions out of being a child star into um, this more adult form of celebrity by doing the playbook that everybody in her position does that everyone still for some reason is like oh my goodness i can't believe that you're being sexual in public like uh, what yeah what basically the other side of the argument Whoopi's argument is the side of like yeah that's all well and fine but that's not how the world is so considering the fact that there will be someone that's going to hack you and you just can't do anything about that you should probably take these measures that you wouldn't normally have to take if you weren't a celebrity. Yeah, it's like, like you said, it's I, I, I see both sides of the argument, but it's really hard to side with one or the other. I mean, I err on the side of philosophically I and morally and ethically, I err on the side of the idealist argument, but it's hard to discount the pragmatic argument, but it's also hard to side with the pragmatic argument because even though it is very realistic, it inherently puts responsibility on a victim. It's hard to side with that. Uh, the other part of this I want to briefly discuss is the Bella Thorne's writing career and also specifically the title of the book that was released during this whole thing. That's one of the reasons that people think it was blackmail or that it was a setup. It was kayfabe is because she was releasing a book when this all happened, which is there a world where this stuff was happening to her and she didn't acknowledge it and then the book came out and then she acknowledged it? Maybe. Maybe that was her attempting to try and spin a negative into a positive. But also it kind of just seems like a really shitty situation, so I don't really know. But calling her an author, because she gets referred to as an author a lot, is really funny to me. Like, I'm not trying to shit on anybody, like, get your money, do your shit. But this book, The Life of a Wannabe Mogul, A Mental Disarray, Volume 1, 
That is the worst title I've ever heard. Yeah, it's pretty two. bad. <laughs> she wrote it in two weeks. She wrote it in two weeks. And all of her books are like that. She, like, writes stuff out by hand in little journals. And they're like, I mean, look, I haven't read these poems. Maybe these poems are amazing. And I'm just being really shitty and judging a book by its cover. But I did watch a lot of interviews with her. And we're not necessarily dealing with um, Don DeLillo here. I think she has many attributes. I think she is very keen and very shrewd in certain aspects. And I don't think that you get to be where she is without being somebody who's super driven and has a deep well of strength. Do I think that she's going to single-handedly rebirth the poetry medium? And also, of course, they're poems. Of course, they're poems. Yeah, I mean, I, I might be going out on a limb and I might anger some people, but uh, there are three types of people or, or there's there are three professions or whatever jobs or whatever you would call it that I am extremely dubious of. And it's... Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. I'm going to guess you're going to say rocket tester, like spaceship rocket tester guys, alligator catchers. And um, the people who make the double cheeseburgers at McDonald's, I think you're very skeptical of them. I think you don't trust them. Yeah, because I think I think that it's all one person and the burgers are actually just <laughs> the fucking alligators and they're not telling us we're eating. And al- they cook them using giant uh, yeah, we're, rocket exhaust. We're, we're eating we're eating alligator burgers fried in rocket fuel and nobody Wait. nobody's telling us. Wake up, sheeple. Wake up. Do your research. But aside from that, I am by default dubious of photographers, graphic designers, and poets because they are art forms that it is so subjective what constitutes a good poem or a good photo or like a well-designed piece of graphic art to a lot of people. They don't really understand what is good or what is not. And so they're easily tricked into being led to believe that something is high quality when it's not. If you have a camera, you can call yourself a photographer because you can just take a picture and just pretend like it's artsy. You can just be like, oh yes, in this photo, I I used a, a wonderful dichotomy between the negative space and the rule of threes, you know, and, and, you, and you've just like snapped a picture without even adjusting any of the settings. And with graphic design, you can just put a bunch of gradients in Photoshop and just be like, yeah, like this is what your website looks like. And the same thing with poems. Like I'll fucking make a poem right now. Three parts off of the Nile stars in my eyes. And then I like there, that was a genius poem. And you don't know because you're just a regular person. You don't know what a good poem is. (laughs) Shots fired. Uh, Please direct all your hate mail to (laughs) Andrew at deepcuts.com. I personally respect uh, the intricacies of the art form known as graphic design. I love photographers, but also I'm anytime someone says they're a poet, I'm kind of like, oh, really? Okay. So we, we, I'll meet you in the middle on that one. This has been Old Man Rant with Andrew. <laughs> I was on an Old Man where, Rant. Andrew, Andrew, where can they find you on the internet? <laughs> DPphotography.com. <laughs> in April of 2019, she dated Benjamin Muscolo. In July of 2019, she came out as pansexual. Sexuality is obviously a big part of Bella Thorne's life, as it is with anyone. And when you live a public life, sometimes sexuality becomes something that is put on display and leveraged against you. When it comes to Bella, she's definitely using it to her advantage. 
That's not to say that it doesn't backfire or that she's even in control of it all the time. It's very apparent that she's playing around with the social mores surrounding sexuality and eroticism. She's using her social media following, and she's playing around with taboo subjects. Thirst traps exist for a reason. They spike engagement, and to be honest, she's not even really that transgressive. That's what's so interesting about this to me. Like, this playbook is so tiring. I feel like every five years there's a former Disney princess who does the exact same thing and people freak out every time. I, fi I find that as funny as you do. I, I didn't really think about it with this, but what I, th I was thinking about this concept applied to um, sort of provocateurs and shock artists and sort of performance artists that create concepts around offending people with shocking behavior. And I'm not talking about people who, you know, have like real, like go out there and like make rape jokes to, you know, for shock value or whatever. I'm talking about like, I, I thought about it because I saw this specific video. I think it was, maybe it was the Michael Douglas show or it was one of, it's one of these 1970s chat shows and Gene Simmons from Kiss was on the show. And there was like some other woman who was like, she was like a comedian, but like a very kind of sort of traditional kind of conservative comedian. And then there was like parents in the audience and things. And so Gene Simmons comes out and he's, you know, he's, he's in, he's in his kabuki character makeup and stuff. And later on before, like even before they unmasked themselves in, in the late eighties, even before that, at a certain point in kind of like the early 80s, they kind of dropped their characters and they can't, they kind of became more regular people. They still wore the, the makeup and they still never showed their real faces, but they more or less just kind of dropped the characters and just kind of were themselves, uh, you know, an exaggerated version of themselves, but they just were kind of guys. But in the early days of Kiss, they were like characters and their whole concept was just performance shock art where they would just go, you know, on interview shows. And, you know, Gene Simmons is like he goes on and he's just like sitting there and looking around and like sticking out his tongue at people. And then, you know, they'd ask him questions. They'd be like, oh, what is you know, what does your music sound like? And he'd be like, it sounds like pure evil and just stuff like that. And there's like audible gasps in the audience and the girl, the, the woman next to him, it's like literally clutching her pearls and just, you know, like rolling her eyes and shaking her head. And, and then she spouts, she says some kind of comeback to him about how he has no morals or whatever. I find it so funny because these people over and over again throughout the decades, they keep getting fooled by people doing improv all he's doing is he's trying to just say weird off-putting shit that's just that's his he has a he he has a character and his goal is i'm gonna go out there and i'm just gonna make people freaked out and then he goes out there and he's just ad-libbing weird stuff there's no meaning behind it he's not secretly a satanic sleeper agent trying to corrupt our children he's just a guy who thinks it's funny and then also crafted a career off of going out on stage and like saying weird shit that offends people and they fall for it. And it's so funny to me because I sit there and I'm seeing this Jewish theater geek just being like, I love the devil. And everyone's like, he actually loves the devil. It's so funny to me that people get 
bamboozled by that over and over yeah, again. I mean, and, and this this Bella Thorne thing that she's doing is like the really safe, tame, low rent version of what Miley Cyrus did like five years ago or ten years ago, whatever it was. It's the same thing that you know Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato and all of these Disney girls. Britney Spears did it. Christina Aguilera did it. Madonna did it. Like, they all get put in this little box, unfortunately, by our culture. And the way out of it is by subverting expectation and not being an air quotes good girl and uh, playing with the social mores of the time, whatever that happens to be. Um, and it's really silly that every time he, the, 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 the mainstream American culture is just like, <gasps> but she was such a good girl. Like, well, she's doing this to get a ride. Like, this is calculated. Yeah. This is a, a very specific calculated thing that these people are doing in order to ensure that their career will be around. Because if they played it safe, they would be ignored and become irrelevant. It's just, it, 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 it's not rocket science. I, I do th- I do think it's it's kind of I do find it interesting the st- the strategy of it though even if it's just the same tired playbook over and over again I mean I I put the mockery solely on the the receiver of like how do you oh, yeah, how do no, you no, totally. how do you keep fool getting fooled about this over and over again but I'm intrigued by the strategy of it where it's essentially like ripping off a bandaid I have this reputation that's been sort of thrust upon me that I did not choose I've been baptized in it by being on this Disney Channel show and the strict rules that they have around what you can do when you are on one of their shows and it cauterizes you in place. It's like, this is what you are and people are going to view like this forever. If you lived your normal life like that, like say, you know, say, you know, Dave Baker was on the hit mid 2000s Disney Channel show, Bacon and Legs. And it was, and, and it was like, are you legs? Are you <laughs> yeah, legs? I'm legs. I'm legs. Because, because, it, and it's, it's, you know, you, in the show, you play, you play Dave Bacon. And then, and then my is name. Is Dave Bacon, is Dave Bacon like even shorter than me? He's like two feet tall. And so the camera never shows the rest of your body. It, it's only like kneecaps down yes. for you. <laughs> exactly. That's why. That's why. And I, my name is Joshua Legs. And you only <laughs> ever see my legs. And so, you know, we do this show that's a hit mid 2000s Disney Channel show. And because of being on the show, we have this squeaky clean public persona where we're viewed as these like young, very moral, sometimes even like explicitly Christian teenagers. So say that happened and then say you went on and just lived your life as normal. You didn't go to any kind of extremes. You didn't act out in any way. You just tried to live your normal, well-adjusted life. Anytime you made the slightest misstep, it would be a huge controversy because you would be operating in this zone. And then anytime, you know, you would be, you'd be kind of between you would, you would have the bumpers on, on a, I'm now I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain the metaphor instead of using my hands because listeners can't see that, but you've got the bumpers on, on the, on the bowling alley. And, you know, you've kind of have those guardrails and anytime you kind of slightly stepped over it, people, it would, people would be like, what, what did he do? He doesn't do that. That's not a thing that he does. And that would kind of be that would kind of be torturous to live your life like that, where you feel confined by that and you feel scared to push boundaries. So instead of that, instead of living your life as normal and well adjusted, you're just going to you're going to get it done early. You're going to shatter those boundaries and create a sandbox for yourself. 
So you do the most extreme thing possible so that you widen your horizons. And so now one day you can go, you can just live a normal, well-adjusted life and no longer have to give a shit about that because you've already gone to the extremes. So you're not having watchdogs watching your every move, waiting for you to do the even slightest out of expectation thing. I think the reason why it's such a common playbook is because it's kind of the only option you're given at that stage in your life in that very specific career trajectory. Unless you want to live the rest of your life with people running a purity test on every single thing you do. These poor girls are put into a box by Disney or Fox or quite honestly by us. And then when they want to experiment with not being in that box, we all collectively gasp and clutch our pearls, which honestly is probably the exact reaction these performers are hoping for. Bella Thorne is smart. She knows what she's doing. What are the end goals of this? Who's to say? But things quickly go into overdrive. In August of 2019, she directed a short film for Pornhub titled Her and Him, co-starring Abella Danger and Small Hands. Open your eyes. The person's mind can become confused when... So we're, we're watching the trailer. Yep, we are. That's, that's, that's what I can describe this as. We're watching the trailer. Yeah, it's... Um, the plot of the, the short film that she directed is a boy comes home, thinks his girlfriend is trying to kill him, and then they engage in foreplay, and we are seeing some rapid cut pseudo artsy footage that looks like a college freshman made it. Yep. I mean, what it, what it looks like is it looks like a, it looks like the aesthetics of a 10 second artsy Instagram video, but blown up into a widescreen short film with actual dialogue and things happening. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to, there's a couple of things to talk about here. One, um, why did this movie get made? Why did Bella Thorne decide to do it? Is it good? Is it actual porn? Uh, no, it's not actual porn, uh, which will be a recurring theme throughout the rest of our discussion here. Um, this 30-minute short film was produced in conjunction with Pornhub in order to attempt to accrue subscribers to their Pornhub premium SVOD service. And they're basically trying to say, hey, people with large social followings, come make content for Pornhub premium that is maybe porn. Maybe it's not necessarily. We don't necessarily know. Um, but it's probably erotic. Like, come make whatever you want. We'll pay for it, and we'll recoup our money by subscriber fees. And um, she made this thing, and she won some awards at the Pornhub Awards. So you know they were impartial and non-biased. And uh, the general reaction to the short film is weird. That's a thing that exists. It's pretty strange. Um... It's, but it, it, again, it's the same thing where it's like, it's the very tame version of a transgressive rebrand. The interesting story there is, you know, Joe Jonas becomes porn director. And then you watch it and it's crazy and it's porn. This is Bella Thorne becomes porn director and it's. Not really porn. Yeah, it's just it's just it's it's like porn adjacent. It's like 
the the provocative aspect of this is just that she has associated her name with Pornhub, but she didn't. But, but she didn't. But she didn't want to quite go to the limit and yeah. put the P in the in the V. <laughs> the issue being, this film isn't overtly porn. It's very similar to her online persona. It's sexy, risque, but stops short of being anything really porny. The reaction was pretty bad from people. Like, most people were just confused as to why Pornhub made a non-porn movie for subscribers. And even more confused as to why they hired Bella Thorne to direct it. The world, well, it's changed a lot. Sexuality is now one component of a celebrity's ability to accrue followers and exploit that attention, especially women celebrities. You also need friends in high places. It's often said that artists don't become famous off of their work, but off of their friend group. Bella Thorne has been seen publicly dating people like Logan Paul and Tristan Clare. Basically, she knows how to insert herself into social ecosystems, and the right social ecosystems. Her Instagram and Twitter account have gained millions of followers. She's become something of an internet titan, which is weird. Yes, she's an actor and an, in air quotes, author and a singer, but she's really an influencer. That's what she's really known for. People know her as the girl with millions of followers. And then she did something that no one with her level of clout had done before. Ella Thorne set up an OnlyFans account. Wanna guess how it went? She set the record when she earned over a million dollars within the first 24 hours of joining the site on August 19th, 2020. However, everyone seems to have not noticed this tweet. It's a screenshot of a paper magazine uh, interview that she did about joining OnlyFans. And the caption of it says, me plus OnlyFans plus Sean Baker equals bomb ass movie. Heart eye emoji, heart eye emoji, heart eye emoji. And then a link to the OnlyFans, which I find very fascinating for, a, for multiple reasons. Number one, usually these things happen when somebody has an experience and then they either from that experience are like, I need to make a movie of that. Or they tell their story and somebody else wants to develop it into a movie. But did she preemptively say, I'm going to start an OnlyFans and I'm going to make a movie about it? And also this idea that she just says that she's making the movie with this director. Like there's no deal. There's there's no actual agreement. Well, we she don't just, know that yet. Because well, the po the photo that she posted has her with script pages. The your, your, the the photo for the announcement it was announced in by Paper Magazine. That's the that's and the pilot to Davy Bacon and Legs. <laughs> she one of the original auditioner for Legs and she lost to me. Yeah. If I hadn't killed that audition, she would have been. Legs. You would you would be doing this episode right now about me breaking OnlyFans with Bella Thorne. What a different world we live in. Yeah. Here is the and you'd get um, a Nobel Prize for this episode handed directly to you by President Reverend Jesse Jackson. Yes, that's how that works. So here's what the here's what the paper magazine article that was the announcement of her OnlyFans had to say. Best-selling poet. <laughs> <laughs> the article does not have the air quotes. 
and award-winning porn director Bella Thorne has inevitably joined the popular subscription service OnlyFans. Paper can exclusively announce, as well as sharing exclusive paid content on her channel. Thorne is also in talks to star in a documentary film about her experience on the platform. To answer your next question, subscribing to Thorne's OnlyFans will cost $20 per month, and she's expecting to draw a lot of attention. Safe estimates earning Bella $1 million a month, a press release predicts. Thorne's selfies are already incredibly popular on Instagram, but her pivot to a subscriptions-based business model speaks to the general shift by influencers away from social networking and towards paid content. As well as monetizing her posts, she also hopes to bypass Instagram's strict censorship policies by using a service that's popular among adult entertainers for imposing few content restrictions. OnlyFans is the first platform where I can fully control my image without censorship, without judgment, and without being bullied online for being me, she tells Paper. She also told us a little more about her upcoming movie, to be directed by Sean Baker, known for Tangerine and The Florida Project. She's a huge fan of Baker's work and says that she shares the same vision of the movie being a conversation starter for many important topics. Thorne, who famously leaked her own nudes when threatened by a hacker, is a strong advocate for women owning their sexuality, as well as their financial freedom. A self-confessed wannabe mogul, it's no surprise that she's turning to OnlyFans, which is currently peaking in popularity thanks to a shout-out in Megan The Stallion and Beyonce's Savage remix, and has supposedly netted its creators more than $725 million in profit so far. Whether she plans to share bikini pics or selfies or poems, we're in. Except if it's poems. Subscribe to Bella Thorne on OnlyFans right here. One of the things that we kind of haven't talked about as much yet is... So her general internet persona is exactly what you think it is. You know, cute selfies uh, at parties uh, with rich people, uh, you know, kind of sexy bikini photos. All the, the, the typical I'm a female influencer thirst trap stuff. Um, and I think that's great. Good for you, Bella Thorne. Like, and then weird Dave Bacon and Legs fan art. She just posts so much of Dave Bacon and Legs fan art. Yeah. Um, but I just the only reason I bring that up is because it's I think it's important to know that her her online persona is what's up? I'm 22 and I'm hot and I drink. Woo! Like that's largely what she posts. And I'm in favor of that. If that's what you want to post, great. Uh but it's also kind of tame. Like it's not, it's it's not anything that's super transgressive or going to offend anybody in any real way, uh, or at least not to my sensibilities. Like I, I don't look at it and I'm like, Oh man, wow. This person is really cutting the mustard. I don't know. That's not <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh man. Did you see? Did you see? Did you see the <laughs> hardcore gay porno that Taylor Lautner directed? It cuts the mustard. <laughs> Man, he's really cutting that mustard. <laughs> did you see <laughs> Did you see the Dave Bacon and Legs porn parody? It cuts the Dijon mustard. <laughs> the mustard that's so stupid what does that even mean wait isn't cut cut the mustard isn't that like slang for farting 
cut the mustard is like is like it doesn't it doesn't pass like isn't that, that it's past like, mustard isn't that past mustard cut the I think cut yeah. the mustard. What is cut I the mustard? Cut, I, I thought I, I I thought I knew what that meant. I think cut the mustard is farting, and I think pass mustard. Let's well, cut the cheese. No, yeah, look, cut the mustard. Come up to expectations. Reach the oh, required okay, standard. Okay, all right, never mind. I was right. I, I mean, did see. I, mean, I did know the thing. I mean, pass mustard is also a thing. I'm pretty sure. Oh God, I'm such a fucking idiot. <laughs> Pass mu- the, the, cut the mustard and pass mustard have the exact same definitions. Be accepted as adequate or satisfactory. So they just they both have the same exact meaning and they just have a weirdly similar sound. Uh, there you go. Well, fire up your Chromebooks and navigate to Urban Dictionary and fan edit that page, baby. Because cut the mustard now has a new meaning. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Uh, so yeah, her content is pretty, you know, tame, uh, good for her. I'm excited that she's making whatever she wants to make or whatever. I don't really care, but I'm just putting it in context of it's, it's not particularly transgressive. Yeah. She's basically, oddly enough, it's the Disney channel version of, it really is like a risque Instagram influencer. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think that just kind of generally is like, she just kind of is that person. Like, I think this is the furthest out she can go as a person. And I don't think that she, I don't think she has the hard reboot button within her. You know what I mean? This is a soft reboot. This is, this is X-Men. She's X, she's sexy X-Men first class thing. She's not, you know, uh, Daredevil the TV showing. Yeah, I mean, it. she, she reminds me of, so don't ask me why I was going through a dark time, but you couldn't cut the mustard. I couldn't cut the mustard. I've watched Entourage, which is a terrible show, but I have watched the entire thing. Once again, do not ask me why I watched that entire show. I was going through a dark time, but there's a character in the show and the character in the show is kind of emblematic of just the sort of vacuous hollowness of the whole show in general. But there's a character on the show, which is like, he's supposed to be like an amalgamation of a like Quentin Tarantino, late 60s, Martin Scorsese slash like kind of Troy Duffy type director who the main character wants to work with because he he's starring in all these big budget movies and he wants to do like edgy independent movies. So he does this. He does this movie called Queens Boulevard or whatever. And it's just, it's just like a, it's just like a a gritty indie movie. And this, this director directs it. And he, and in the, in the movie, he's supposed to be that character, this like, this like auteur, like, I don't give a fuck, won't sacrifice my vision type director. But the people who wrote the show are like shallow hacks. So they don't actually know what it means for like what the motivations behind a character like that would be. So they write their version of what an uncompromising auteur director is. And it's all surface level. It's just like, oh, he's got a, he's like a New Yorker and he yells. And that that's 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 the best that they can do to like create a character that's like one of these types of people. And that's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of what a off the rails rebellious sexy instagram influencer would be like written by somebody who doesn't know actually know what a person like that is 
Yeah, that's basically what it is. And her OnlyFans, she's using it, leveraging the brand in order to make money, right? She has this massive social following. So she figures, I'm going to start this account. It's going to be a ton of people who are going to sign up for it um, because my defining attribute to a lot of people is sexuality. And I'm, I'll make a lot of money and we'll see what happens. Um, but the interesting part about this to me is that she's so transparent. She's not actually selling her sexuality in the way that a lot of sex workers are. She's selling the idea of her sexuality. She's selling, she's selling the brand awareness that she is now standing adjacent to this thing that is usually utilized by sex workers in order to monetize their sexuality. Yeah, exactly. That, because, because like we've talked about before in this whole controversy and the expectations that were set, OnlyFans is not exclusively a porn service. It's just largely used for it. So when somebody mentions OnlyFans, you, you know, that's just your, it's the association. It's like, it's like when you call tissue cleaner Kleenex, they've so coupled their branding with what that is that you refer to an entire type of thing by one specific brand or chapstick yeah, or, whatever. or or like small bandages being referred to as band-aids yeah so or award-winning television shows being referred to as dave bacon and legs yeah bacon exactly. and legs yeah that's the you know that the, the new hit bacon and legs on nbc this summer like that's weird that everybody says that now but they do yeah but but the, capitalizing off of that idea that like when you say OnlyFans, you think oh, thirst traps and masturbation videos, and then she's like, I'm on OnlyFans, and then she even explicitly says, no nude. I'm I'm so okay. Uh, this is a screen cap from her Twitter, which uh, was posted uh, on eight twenty five twenty twenty. A New York Post tweet that says Bella Thorne earns $1 million on OnlyFans in 24 hours and a link to an article. And she quote tweeted it and said, also, no, I'm not doing nudity. Heart emoji. She's literally stating, I'm not going to do nudity. I'm not doing it. Which is so fucking funny. It's so funny from where this story goes. It's so fucking funny that at every turn, she's just like... I'm going to log onto this thing and make a documentary about it. I'm not doing nudity. What's up? These, these Let's see what happens. And it's in some ways, it's very shrewd. And in some ways, it's kind of insidious. Because in some ways, she's planning on the echo chamber of the so social media world to diffuse the story so that even though she at every turn is saying, I'm not doing this, I'm do not doing that, I'm doing it for a movie, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing I'm doing it for a movie. She knows that because her fan base is so large and because the brand awareness coupled with her name has such a potent clickable thing that the story is what it is. Like, it's, it's so fascinating to me, the intricacies of going into something with the 100% certainty that you will be misunderstood and betting on it. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, 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 when when you when you refer to it as somewhat insidious, this this what we're talking about right now and what she did, it reminds me of, and I'm not saying that it's anywhere near as evil as this, but it reminds me of Donald Trump's public persona and the way that he um, 
speaks to people on different platforms because you know he does the same thing he'll he'll be in a press conference and he'll say one thing and then he will literally say the opposite on twitter like he'll he'll be in a press conference talking about how serious the the pandemic is and how they're doing all these things to help it and all these things and then he'll literally retweet like conspiracy theories talking about it's how it's a hoax on twitter and it's like how like that's so weird. What, how can you, how can you like be talking about it here and acknowledging that it's real? And then over here, you are literally like saying that it's a hoax. And the reason for that is because these specific moments are not important. The, the important thing is the overall brand. And he just needs to say what he needs to say in the moment on the platform that he needs to say it. And it doesn't matter if they're contradictory or if one thing is the direct opposite of another thing because he captures that audience in the moment in in that space and then he accomplishes what he wants to accomplish there he does the same thing over here and those specific moments die and are lost you know like tears and rain which you 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 think that they wouldn't be because it's all immortalized on social media you'd think that it would be the opposite. It would you'd think that it'd be like, oh, we can go back and show you proof. We have the receipts, but people don't care about it. Once it's done, it's just it just d- disappears into the uh, the amorphous blob of his brand. And it's it, it reminds me of this where she said it from the very beginning, but the brand association still created the expectation, and it's almost like she did it on purpose where. She knew that people would still think that it was going to happen and that was going to be a large part of why they subscribed. But at the end of the day, when she didn't do that and people were disappointed or cried trickery, she could be like, I said that I wasn't doing it before I even made the page. Bella Thorne was leveraging the public's deep-rooted understanding of branding of OnlyFans to drain monetary value out of what we collectively deem as celebrity. There are harsh lines surrounding all of these issues, lines that are emphasized and delineated largely with technological advances made by companies that leverage public interest and attention for their own purposes. In many ways, the behavior of people that are involved in this ecosystem is decidedly similar to the beginnings of fan culture and how it branded itself. Tribalism, nativism, rawly pure emotion, and a yearning for the stand-in Mary Sue do-gooder. Once relegated to the dark corners of the internet, with an emphasis on appealing to people with outsider complexes, it's now evolved into the way that we conduct elections and vote for political office, or which store we shop at, or which celebrities we like and what type of jeans we buy. Everything now boils down to a simple concept, branding. How dare you tell me that my insert corporately controlled lobbyist-backed person with a $500 haircut is not actively working for my best interest? My identity is wrapped up in the politicization of the branding around them stamping down complex issues into black and white sound bites. This is the crucible of our time, the defining characteristic that will be burned into the tombstone of an entire generation. And what will it say? Honestly, it'll probably just be a Nike swoosh with a peace logo and that weird Disney capital D. I find it interesting that a lot of these topics are kind of dovetailing off of multiple other episodes of deep cuts like this is we're, we're, we're starting to talk a little bit about stuff that we talked about in 
in the in the Britney Spears episode. And we're going to talk more about this as the episode goes on. And but, you know, th this whole story is we talked about a lot of the the christening of this concept and the way that in the late 90s, early 2000s, celebrity became this different beast that was no longer about attaining a certain goal. And it was more about just the act of attaining it. So we talked about the role of the camera and how initially it was like, I want to be a movie star. So I'm going to do all these things to become more famous so that I can be in movies. And then eventually it started to become, I just want to be famous. I want to be in front of the camera. So that we talked about the sort of beginnings of that. And, and this is sort of just the multiple, multiple different evolutions have led to kind of where we are with, with this now. And it also, it also kind of plays into what we were talking about with the, uh, the, the, I think, I think on the speed racer episode, uh, and, and just the existence of, of corporate interest in art. Um, so I, so I find that interesting. That's kind of different topics we've we've it's it's almost like we're crafting like a a deep cuts philosophical universe or something um yeah and i i in, in in some respects i feel like that's due to the fact that you know there are kind of like my interests and then there are kind of your interests and then there are there's this weird area in the middle where there's a certain subset of topics and um subjects that you and i both are interested in and end up sp spending a lot of time outside of the show talking about and those conversations start these dna strands of like we just were talking about whatever we were talking about and then at the end of the conversation we independently both went away and we're like i think this frustration with like the digital you know codification of life uh is gonna spark an episode about this like i want to write about that or, and you might take it and be like oh yeah when we were talking about kind of how Everybody got objectified hardcore to a level it was never done before in the early 2000s. I'm going to write about Britney Spears or whatever the specific subject is. Like, you know, there's there's definitely certain and I think it'll be I think it's pretty apparent to regular listeners which areas I'm interested in very specifically and which areas you're interested in specifically. And then where the middle common like it's almost like there's a third there's like Dan Drew. Which is like the 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 kind of like this other thing that your interest and my interest together spark. I'm Sandro. <laughs> Please kill me. <laughs> I can't live without pain. No, Dandrew, we need you. The world today revolves around brand awareness. Not even a nuanced understanding of a brand. Literally just being aware of a thing. The emotional equivalent of hearing someone whisper in another room. Every social media startup and would-be SVOD is attempting to make their claim, but the reality is that it almost doesn't matter if they win or lose their respective battles, because it's ultimately branding as a concept that has won. The next evolution of Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message edict. Life is branding. Everyone now has a platform, an audience, a brand to uphold, to maintain, to subvert, to acquiesce to. Individuals, companies, babies, fictional characters, they all have brands. The most damning element of the way the world works now is that we've all collectively agreed that we don't want to pay for anything on the internet. 
So, we've opted for selling little pieces of ourselves over and over and over again. We've opted to jack ourselves into a system where there is no winning. We've all deconstructed ourselves into a key branding opportunity. I feel like the most stark example of this, and I'm sure I'm sure you've read about this, but the fact that Herman Cain just kept tweeting after he died, and I and I saw I saw a tweet from somebody else, which I don't remember who the person was, but the tweet was, I can't believe we still have to keep tweeting after we die. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah, and and not only that, but the fact that he died of coronavirus and his Twitter page is still actively posting like misinformation about coronavirus not being a big deal or or being a hoax or being blown out of proportion. Like that is that is the level to which the idea of branding has completely dominated every aspect of culture to the point where not only does it no longer matter whether you're alive or not, but also the actual details and facts about your life no longer matter to what you represent as a brand. You can simultaneously die of COVID-19 and also still be an influencer posting COVID-19 misinformation. And there are people that use that as a data point. There are people that are like, Herman Cain was ride or die, man. Even from beyond the grave, he was he he believed in something. He was like, yeah, COVID-19 isn't fucking real. Even though the facts of the situation are it fucking killed him. But like that's literally used as a rallying cry for a certain sect of person, which yeah. is just yeah, and yeah, and and it's because of that. It's because of that separation. He is a brand, and the the context of his death or the details of his death no longer matter. So depressing. It used to be that there were large mechanisms that both generated celebrity, defined it, and commodified it. But now there are a myriad of ways for people to exploit their perceived social currency. OnlyFans just happens to be one of the ways you can do it. Patreon, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, they all provide a mechanism for people to leverage attention into dollars. That's all Bella Thorne was shrewdly doing. Then, if that wasn't enough money, Bella Thorne posted a pay-per-view piece of content promising to be nudes, and was charging $200 in tips in order to see it. Up until this point, I've personally been on her side, but we're about to cross the Rubicon. It wasn't actually nude at all. Instead, it was a lingerie-clad photo of herself. That's pretty shitty, honestly. But also, is it surprising? No, everything else she did on the site was like this. It's walking right up to the line and then being like, nah, I'm good, and not crossing it. She literally tweeted, I'm not doing nudity, heart emoji. And then she just blatantly misled people. It's weird. Who the fuck would pay $200 for a digital lingerie photo? Not me. Of anybody. I I, I, I would pay it of you. I don't even have a, I don't even have a comeback for that. I'm just, I'm just smiling a mile wide smile. (laughs) I don't even have a witty thing to say back to that. Incidentally, my OnlyFans will go live tomorrow at 12 PM. And it'll be one, it'll be one photo. (laughs) (laughs) It'll just be you and Hillsmer, like, you know, 69ing. <laughs> Don't pay if you're not Dave. If you're not Dave, you're not paid. 
Actually, that was the well, that was the reason why I quit Dave Bacon and Legs is because that was actually the show's motto. That's true. And eventually, yeah, you were you were you were doing it on a volunteer basis. You had yeah. an internship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it fair? No. Is it cool? No. Is it something a super entitled rich person might do? Maybe. Is it surprising? Hell no. Not at all. Well, the initial tidal wave of attention that caused the largest single-day record on OnlyFans. A million dollars on day one, two million dollars by the end of the week. All from this single photograph. And then people started to wake up. They realized that they were being had. They began clamoring for refunds, which changed OnlyFans forever. Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. Act three. Puts on a Tron helmet, but is completely naked otherwise. That's the name of my OnlyFans tomorrow at noon. The digital world is a weird place. It's filled with unknown vistas and rapidly changing terrain. And this is doubly proven by a bunch of simps wanting their money back for not getting what they were promised. OnlyFans was inundated with refund requests after fans got a look at the photo that Bella had purported to be nude. This caused massive issues for OnlyFans. Imagine running a business. You're a hard-working, you know, pseudo-shady Russian dude who probably has pseudo-shady connections to whatever the fuck the original company was that owned OnlyFans. And you're just pulling in money, and then one day, people come out of the woodwork, and they want their money back. A tsunami of buyer's remorse hits you, and you have to give all of the money that you rightfully earned back to the people who paid it to you. This titillation wasn't the titillation I was promised! Promised, 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 promised. Echoed throughout the internet in the ensuing days. The impact on the sex workers industry has been extreme. OnlyFans has now established a limit to the amount of money you can pay for a PPV piece of content. 50 bucks. Down from 200. They've also extended the amount of time that payment is transferred. From 7 days to 30 days. Which, this is the thing that really just sucks. Is that, like, there are all these people who are making a living on OnlyFans... And they've organized their lives around these payment structures and business models. And now it's changing, not because the business models don't work, but because the business models work too well and somebody else fucked it up. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. So first of all, we've talked in great detail about commodification of sexuality, largely in the Britney Spears episode, but we've been talking about it now. And what more extreme personification of that of commodifying your own sexuality, could there be then your sexuality literally destabling an entire economic system? That is, and the system is all built around sexuality. So it's not like you're like introducing a foreign virus into an ecosystem. You are like almost kind of playing straight man to an already existing thing. Yeah. Like she's, she's like, I'm not really going to do the whole nude thing and I'm not really going to do sex shows and I'm, I'm not really going to have sex on camera. I'm kind of just going to be my normal self, but adjacent to 
a sex industry. It's kind of, honestly, you know what it is? It's, it's the Marcel Duchamp idea of artistic appropriation where the artist is the person who redefines context. You know, he obviously was very famous for taking a urinal and placing it in a, a gallery space and saying that it was art, signing his name on the urinal. He didn't make the urinal. He had nothing to do with the urinal, but he signed a name. He signed a pseudonym, R. Mutt, on the urinal. And his thesis was that the artist is the person who recontextualizes, period. And so, you don't. it's not actually rooted in craft. It's not rooted in any sort of execution of an idea. It's separate and disparate ideas being combined in a way that wouldn't be typical. And that's almost exactly what this is. But just really, unfortunately, people be getting hurt because it's not done well, where she's almost kind of like using her physical body and recontextualizing her body and her normal internet persona against a theoretically lower class, dirty brand. And that brand, it's almost kind of like slumming it. It's like the song, you know, Common People, but for sexuality, where she's kind of just like, I'm going to like see what it's like to be a poor sex worker for a minute, but I'm not actually going to do the sex work and I'm not going to give up any of my money. Yeah. You know, it's similar to the conversation around actors portraying certain types of people that we talked about in the Jared Leto episode and the idea of like, you know, somebody like Jared Leto being like, I just want to, I'm going to live in the skin of a transgender person for three months. And then I'm going to go back to my regular life when this movie's over and just be Jared Leto again and go back to my cult. Thank God he has that cult. He'd be so lonely without that cult. Yeah. I mean, especially during a pandemic. But but the other thing, and I think this is, I think this is kind of the, going to be kind of the thesis of the rest of this episode that we're talking about. But uh, the other thing about this is, not just OnlyFans. I think I think people are, as we're going to talk about, people are really critical of this idea of a privileged celebrity kind of coming in and just cosplaying or pretending to be a sex worker for a couple days and kind of fucking over a bunch of people's lives. But, you know, this happens in all aspects of art, like Kickstarter or even podcasts as a as an art form. Podcasts started out as a way for independent creators to distribute their voice and get it heard by an audience without the backing of a major distributor or having any kind of distribution platform or having any kind of representation or having any kind of deal. And Kickstarter, you know, something like Kickstarter is supposed to be a way for independent creators to fund their ideas directly from the people who want the idea without having to go through a traditional studio or incubator system. And they start out like this. And they go on for a while. And then eventually you get to a place where now every fucking celebrity has a podcast and they've completely choked out all of the independent podcasts. And now people don't care as much about them anymore. And now it's like, oh, this podcast doesn't have Rob Lowe hosting it. I don't care about this. And it's like, come on, guys. Like you had movies like you you had movies. Let us do this. What are you doing? You had movies. Why do you have to come take this too? And then Kickstarter is like, Zach Braff, you're using Kickstarter to make a movie and then you get the rest of the money from the Warner Brothers? Like, what are you, why? You already had a different thing. Why are you doing this too and taking away money from other independent filmmakers? It's like, why? 
Why do you have to take this too? I agree. And scene. And that was a dramatic reading from a, an episode from season three of Bacon and Legs. <laughs> it's funny because when you were doing that, you're, you, you almost were like doing like a New York accent. I was like, do it, keep going, keep going. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> you had movies. Come on. Like, it was great. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. It's just like the, the world's shittiest fucking uh, Dustin Hoffman monologue. The uh, Well, that was the last episode of Bacon and Legs. Was was You finally see Legs, and he's really, 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 really tall, and he has no torso, and it's just a head on the legs, and it's Dustin Hoffman's head. You had movies! Now I gotta do a Kickstarter in order to get a body! <laughs> now The story. Rock is kickstarting a new body? What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> basically, from here, you know, the, everybody loses their shit online, and it's really pissed at Bella Thorne. It becomes a media firestorm, understandably. Um, because she's fucking with people's livelihoods. And so she then comes out and apologizes. And now Legs is going to read Bella Thorne's apology tweet thread. Remove the stigma behind sex. Sex work. No, 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 no. Legs is going to read this. <laughs> Remove the stigma behind sex, sex work, and the negativity that surrounds the word sex itself by bringing a mainstream face to it. That's what I was trying to do. To help bring more faces to the site to create more revenue for content creators on the site. That's all I was trying to do. I wanted to bring attention to the site. The more people on the site, the more likely of a chance to normalize the stigmas. And in trying to do this, I hurt you. I have risked my career a few times to remove the stigma behind sex work, porn, and the natural hatred people spew. Behind anything sex related, I wrote and directed a porn against the highbrows of my peers and managers because I wanted to help with the stigma behind sex. I am a mainstream face. And when you have a voice, a platform, you try to use you in helping others and advocate for something bigger than yourself. Again, in the process, I hurt you. And for that, I'm truly sorry. P.S. I'm meeting with OnlyFans about the new restrictions to find out why. The last part of that text is um, I'm meeting with OnlyFans uh, for new restrictions to find out why. This is so fucked up. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, comment any ideas or concerns uh, you want brought up to OnlyFans and send me links and pics so I can promote you guys. Bravo. Send me links Bravo. and pics so I can promote you guys. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> I love that you read that all as legs. Um, so the you know it'll get, it'll get it'll get no response like my Hitchcock. Hitchcock, yeah, Hitchcock, yeah. I liked the Hitchcock impression. I thought it was great. Look, they can't all be winners, all right. She does this Twitter thread, which is all about you know trying to strangely paint herself as a victim, which is interesting, and then also you know says I wrote and directed a porn. Did you, though? You wrote and directed a thing that was paid for by Pornhub, but that's not porn. Like, I'm sorry. I Maybe I'm wrong in this. Maybe this is, maybe this is a, an entitled perspective. Maybe I'm unaware of the realities of this. But my idea of what porn is, is that it is, it is explicit content where the act 
of sexual gratification is depicted in an intense or revealing way. Well, I mean, I think that there's there's also a bigger definition of pornographic, which is something that is extreme exploitation. Like some, which some it like also like wasn't, can, yeah, well, like, that's what I was going to say is like because there can be a, there can be a pornographic display of violence or something like that. But this isn't even that it was it's not extreme in any way. And the it's, colloquial it's meaning a, behind I wrote and directed a porn yeah. is specifically explicit depictions of this the act of procreation and or sexual gratification which i'm sorry bella but your movie is not that i i want i'm curious though i I was i'm curious what you think about what she says though aside from that like aside from the fact that obviously she's kind of trying to turn things around a little bit on her to sort of make herself the victim in a in a way i think that's clearly sort of what she's doing it's she's trying to do damage control and shift the narrative a little bit but that aside or that in mind these things don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive but what do you think about the thing she says where she says that at various times in her career she has done these things that were at great risk to her career in order to try to move the boundary a little bit further on removing the stigma of sexuality or sex work or porn like what what do you think that that is in any way authentic or is, did she really just make that up as an excuse to try to get herself out of trouble because one read of this is that she just is saying this to try to do damage control but if that is true and if she genuinely has tried to do that i find that very interesting i find it very interesting this concept that she's like made it a mission in her life to like fall on landmines at strategic points for the greater good of pushing a conversation forward. I, I, I find that very fascinating if, if indeed that is something that she has actually tried to do with her career. I think to a certain degree that's accurate. I think she does try and do that, but I don't think it's benevolent. I, I think that the advancement of those conversations can be had while simultaneously someone can be reshaping their image to be somewhat risque. And uh, I think both of those things can happen simultaneously. I think that the person, Bella Thorne, probably does really not want other people to experience whatever hurt, body shame, you know, sex shame that she's had inflicted on her being a former Disney person. I think absolutely that person has a sense of empathy and wants to make the world a better place. I think she's also 22, and I don't think that she's necessarily in control of all of those faculties all of the time, because who would be when they're 20 fucking two? So I think part of these conversations is I want to be seen, and I want to be lusted after, um, like anybody wants to be appreciated for being a beautiful person, and it's a completely understandable impulse to want that gratification, those dopamine hits of all the likes and comments. And I think it also is somebody who is very aware of the rebranding of their public persona that this enables them to do. So I think it's all three, four, whatever those things I said, all at once. It's happening simultaneously in a weird cocktail of benefits and negatives. I find the concept very fascinating if there's any level of earnesty to it, because it kind of reminds me. I mean, there's a lot of stories that it kind of reminds me of, you know, that we talk about it, you know, this idea of dedicating yourself to 
an edict absolutely and sometimes to great personal sacrifice. Uh, we've talked about stories like that, but another one like that that kind of just popped into mind is the producer Steve Albini, who was a record producer all throughout the sort of like late 80s and 90s. He produced a bunch of albums from like the, you know, the early 90s grunge era. So he produced like the Pixies, the Jesus Lizard, hun like hundreds of albums and uh, tons of classic albums from huge bands. And he went he went on to kind of do okay for himself. You know, he he ended up uh, he he formed a band called um, Big Black that has done well enough and he sort of carved out a name for himself as a musician. But, you know, in terms of his producing, his whole thing was he didn't believe that producers and engineers had any creative claim over music. He saw himself as basically like a blue collar worker. And so therefore, he didn't think that he was owed any royalties from the albums that he produced. He thought like the the band makes the music. That's all them. All I've done is just recorded them and basically what he thought was the the purest experience of hearing music is seeing the band play live and all i'm doing is trying to replicate that on a cd so i have no claim over the creative ownership of this music and so therefore i take a payment a commission payment for doing this job and that's the end of my involvement. I don't get any percentage of royalties for having produced this because I had nothing to do with why this record is selling. All I did was facilitate this music being delivered to people in their homes. And if, if the listener doesn't know, the predominant trend in the music industry is that a producer gets 50% of the yeah. ownership of mm -hmm. any song that they produce. Yeah, and he wanted none of which it. Which is a he lot. So it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah, he wanted none. Uh, and he never took any. And even though he and even though he produced all these huge albums, he, you know, he's just kind of a normal guy. He he's uh he has a studio and to varying degrees in varying stages of his life, he does sometimes he doesn't have a lot of money and sometimes he does okay for himself and he's just kind of hustling like all the rest of us, basically. I don't know if I necessarily agree that you deserve zero percent of royalties or percentage of sales or whatever as a producer. I don't know if I necessarily fully agree with the extreme, almost kind of libertarian position that he took on that. But the idea of him just acting as a martyr to not only give all of those bands a hundred percent of the ownership and royalties over their music, but also to make this almost kind of political statement. It's like it's like the career version of the monks who pour gasoline over their bodies and, you know, burn themselves in effigy for protest. And whether or not that made any kind of effect on the music industry is dubious. But there's something very fascinating about that idea of like, I'm going to serve as a, a martyr to push this conversation forward. Obviously, what Bella Thorne claims that she did is not the same it doesn't affect her financially in fact she as we talked about she made a ton of money but it's similar in that if it is true and to whatever degree of benevolence it it had as you were just kind of talking about if it is indeed true it's kind of the equivalent in sort of from a social perspective well one of the things i would point out is that she ends that apology by saying you know send me your account numbers and send me, you know, uh, photos and I'll, I'll promote some people. She hasn't done that. 
Yeah, I mean that the, the, once again that just that's not, that seems like something you say in the moment to try to cull sympathy, but then you know you have no intention of actually following through with it. To make things even more interesting, Sean Baker issues a statement that says he was never involved in any serious way with Bella Thorne. I would like to make it clear that the news of me making a film, documentary, or fiction narrative about OnlyFans and using Bella Thorne as research is false. I'm not attached to this project. I'm actually in development on two features that I've put years of research and love into, and neither of these films have anything to do with Miss Thorne or OnlyFans. Earlier this month, I had a conversation with Miss Thorne and discussed a possible collaboration in the far future that would focus on her life and the circumstances leading to her joining OnlyFans. On that call, I advised her team to consult with sex workers and address the way she went about this as to not hurt the sex work industry. This has been the extent of my involvement. I am an ally and have literally devoted my career to telling stories that remove stigma and normalize lifestyles that are under attack. I would never do anything that could possibly hurt the community. So please know that this news is not correct. Thank you. The real question is, what were those script pages that Bella Thorne was throwing around in the paper magazine photo? I already told you, Dave. I already told you what they were. Look, bacon and legs. I think those pages were usually printed on really large font. I don't think that was those pages. I feel like every bacon and legs script I ever read, the font was like 400. Oh, yeah. Because I had to be able to read it from that high up. Yeah, exactly. Like you had you had the, the script and you'd be down there super low to the floor and I would be towering over you. So I, I was like, can you guys just can you guys just bump this up to like 24? So what is the ultimate fallout of all this? People are pissed at her, but they'll probably forget. This will be an interesting chapter in undoubtedly a very long career. It's an example of raw white privilege incarnate. It's the equivalent of someone making an off-color comment at a party, which sucks because people will lose significant amounts of money from Bella Thorne's actions. Not the crazy sleazy dudes who feel like they've been had, not the faux outrage assholes on Twitter, and definitely not Bella Thorne. She's going to be fine. She'll probably even be more famous after this experiment she just engaged in. She's basically just cosplaying as a sex worker, which is kind of an interesting piece of performance art, potentially, but like everything she does, it was put together in two weeks and not particularly well thought out. It's the little people that were hurt by this. It's the innocence on the outer ring of the conversation, the actual sex workers. And that's who I feel bad for, the sex workers. Grinding it out, no pun intended. But you know what's so existentially terrifying to me about this? And it's funny, I, I, I remember I was, ironically, I was thinking about this a lot whenever I went camping with my family. And I was like building this tent. And I just started- My family. <laughs> For some reason- It doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. It didn't, it sounded like, it sounded like uh, <laughs> Balky from Perfect Strangers. <laughs> I wanted you to say it with my wife, but you didn't. You didn't set me up. <laughs> but I was like building this tent. So it's like it's an even more personification of the problem or it's like I'm out in the wilderness doing this like this definitively non like technological, non plugged into the machine of social media thing. And yet I'm still just it's on my fucking mind. It's like just that's what I'm thinking about. I'm still in that world. But uh, I was thinking about this a lot and just the, what's so existentially terrifying about this is the things that have governed our society, our behavior 
the rule of law and culture, I guess, have all, you know, they're all to varying degrees and also to varying degrees of success and to varying degrees of ethical soundness. They're all very heavily regulated by some large authoritative body, whether it's the government or, you know, a certain section of the of the population's religious system. They're all they're all very heavily regulated in these very to a certain degree, like I said, amongst different groups of people, a very collectively agreed upon way. Even if there's criticisms of it or disagreements about how it should function, everybody kind of agrees that some form of government should exist. And there's definitely different agreements about the size of the government, the amount of control that the government has, the level of regulation that they can extend upon the things that we do. And even anarchy has its sort of own form of governing. It's just kind of in a different way. And in that way, all these things are vetted and and regulated. Uh, These things that are supposed to dictate the way that our daily lives work and the way that we interact and the way that we make money and the way that we, you know, the, the way that our law enforcement exists and all these things. And then you have these, you know, these tech startups, these media companies, which are really not media companies. They're really data mining companies. Facebook is not a media company. Facebook is a digital marketing and advertising platform that capitalizes off of data. And these things are very unregulated. There's a story which may or may not be a thing that we might talk about later at some point in the future. But one of these tech companies was this company called Theranos, which was a tech startup company in Silicon Valley, just like any of these other tech companies, Twitter, Airbnb, whatever, except in their case, the product that they were producing was purportedly this machine where you could get a simple finger stick droplet of blood sample. And with that, you could put it into this machine, which was this big box. And the machine would do all of your, all of these different blood tests and blood work processes for you. So instead of going to all these different specialized doctors and having all this blood work and having, you know, pints of, of blood drawn from you by a phlebotomist and waiting on all these test results or whatever, you literally were supposed to be able to just get a drop of blood, put it in a machine and get everything. The first phase of it was supposed to be that you got this the, the drop of blood and you sent it into their lab where they would use the machine. And then the next phase of it was supposed to be that these machines were supposed to be able to basically be made available to the public like a home computer. And you would just have it in your house. And at any moment, you could get your blood work done. So the idea of it was supposed to be that society would be rapidly changed by the advent of this technology where you could easily get this blood work done. And, you know, people would be catching diseases, cancer much, much earlier. And, you know, the death rates from these diseases that are dependent on how early you catch it would just the numbers would just dramatically drop. They raised you know millions of, of dollars from investors. And at one point they were valued at 12 billion dollars. And then it was basically found out eventually that the whole thing was fake. And they didn't actually have this technology. They had just lied their way into tricking the entire world into thinking that they were doing something that they just weren't doing. And, you know, it brought in, it brought into sharp focus this, this question of like this company, which was completely unregulated because it was a privately held tech company that wasn't subject to any kind of the normal regulation and rules that exist in the metal medical industry was just out there just being like, we invented this machine. We're going to put it in Walgreens and people are going to come in and 
you know, get their blood sample and we're going to tell them whether they have cancer or not. And it was like this huge, massively existentially ethical question surrounding the the very concept of these unregulated, privately held companies. And that's a very extreme example of it. But even Facebook or any of these things, these are largely unregulated at one point, you know, Facebook is public now, but when they start out, they're these privately held companies and they are allowed to go unchecked doing the things that they do, even to the degree that we have wanted to kind of step in and regulate things. People are just never going to allow that because the idea of the government stepping in and regulating a company and a corporation, people would just never settle for that. That's just never going to be allowed to happen in the current country that we live in. So that's sort of the dynamic of how these companies are able to function. And that would be well and fine if they were just media companies. If they were just media companies making video content and fucking articles and whatever, and even collecting your data to market ads at you and stuff like that. The thing that people don't realize is the extent to which these companies are shaping humanity. Facebook fundamentally has changed and dictates the way that human beings behave and interact and learn information and organize and form beliefs. And it's terrifying that Something that has that much power and control over humanity at a global level is just a startup company off somewhere in some buildings in, in Playa Vista, California and San Francisco, just doing whatever they want. Like, that's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me on the internet. HeyDaveBaker.com, where you can find comics like Fuck Off Squad and Action Hospital. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me tomorrow at noon on my debut OnlyFans page. Puts on the Tron helmet, but is completely naked otherwise. Where my first pay-per-view video will be available for a full $200 USD. I'm getting a special privilege from the owner, who I'm close friends with. And you can also find me at DAPriceRights.com where you can buy my book, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye. And where you can see raw outtakes of bacon and legs. Yes, which are also on the OnlyFans because they are pornographic in nature. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Pseudocide, who can be found on Facebook at P-S-E-U-D-O-C-I-D-E with spaces between each letter because apparently Facebook doesn't like the use of the Latin stem side, and the Dead Boy Detectives, who, as far as we can tell, don't actually exist. Oh. And you know the, this, I'm, <laughs> so I know you guys want the porn.
and and we've gotten to the porn and I'm just going to take you off into a, just a nerdy diversion. And I'm sorry. But the thing that I find so fascinating about OnlyFans and the thing that makes it so interesting within the realm of digital media and new media, social media, and the way that content exists within the infrastructure of those platforms is that in around 20, 2016, 2017, so kind of around when OnlyFans started, there was this boom of these SVOD services. And essentially the idea was that all of these media companies had been creating this really premium content for all these social media sites. So these there was these companies that were spending millions of dollars making videos for Facebook and, you know, kind of YouTube, but largely Facebook and Instagram, who they were essentially dumping millions of dollars into this without any viable way to actually monetize it other than doing like sponsored content on the hope and promise that one day they would be able to leverage that in some way. And part of that was like, oh, maybe one day we can monetize content on Facebook, which ended up happening, but this was kind of before that existed. And then the other part of it was, you know, as is the, as the, as is the example of a company that I work for around that time called Super Deluxe, it wasn't even really about making money directly in that way. There was never a desire to eventually monetize the money, uh, the videos directly. It was about capturing a certain audience that you could monetize in other ways. And the whole thing was Turner Broadcasting didn't have a, didn't have any kind of like really effective presence with like cord cutter Gen Z internet consumers. And so they created this company that was supposed to seem, in fact, that, if you're not familiar with it, like, or if you are familiar with it, if you ever saw Super Deluxe, the whole the whole company was kayfabe because it was supposed to look like a hip, super liberal, edgy startup company, but it was owned by the biggest television conglomerate in the world. And it wasn't like a company that started and then got bought by them. They created it purposely to seem like that. It was it was crafted as like a weird like thirst trap for like hipsters and the idea behind creating that content spending millions of dollars was not to monetize it in that way it was just to capture that audience so that they could sell things to them in other indirect ways um but the idea behind this sort of boom in the in like 2017 ish is that all these companies have been making this content for all these years and they were just doing it for free, like literally for free. Other, other than the sponsored content, the brand partnerships and stuff, like every video that you ever saw BuzzFeed post, they were just doing it for free to build an audience. Um, and and so what ended up happening was in, in this time frame, everybody was like, okay, We've spent all these years making, building this audience. We have millions and millions of followers, sometimes 50 million, upward of a hundred million. It's time to make some fucking money. Like, what are we doing? What, like, literally, what is the point of this? And so people started making these, these paywall, you know, OTT SVOD services, which was like a channel where you had 
better, more premium content than what you were supposed to purportedly be able to see for free on Facebook or whatever. And you paid a subscription to be able to see the content. And that subscription could be anywhere between like $5 a month, $3 a month, upwards of $10 a month or whatever. And so all these companies, you know, including the one that I worked for, had these big budgets and were making these larger, more premium TV shows for these services. And it was a seller's market because these these SVOD services were just, they just needed content. They were just like, we just need stuff. We just need as much stuff as we can get. So if you had like halfway an idea for a show, they would buy it from you. And so all these media companies were producing all this content for these SVOD services. And like we did several shows for a bunch of different streaming services. Like we we, we did some series for full screen, which is one of these SVOD services at the time. And the idea was to allow these media companies to make this really good content, high quality, good quality. It was, you know, the shows were supposedly good. I mean, in terms of they were entertaining, they were well written, they were well, well created, well shot. And then they put them behind the paywall and you had to pay for it. And it, it seemed at the time, it seemed like, a simple equation. You have millions upon millions of followers. Tell them that they can watch your stuff, but better quality, but they have to pay $5 a month and we will make millions and millions of dollars. And we'll finally be able to monetize this audience that we've cultivated for the last, you know, 10 years. And so for a while, everybody was buying these. So every media company in the, in the fucking world could sell their show to one of these SVOD services and get paid a bunch of money to make it and make this show and have the clout of being like, we have a TV show on full screen or Go90 or any of these streaming services. And literally this bubble existed in like the first, it, it basically existed like in the middle of 2017 to like the beginning of 2018. And then at the beginning of 2018, the bubble just exploded. And it was like all of these companies went out of business. Like every single one of them, all these SVOD services, full screen, Go90, they all just like shuddered out of nowhere. And it was because nobody paid. It was because it's like, and the thing that people realize quickly is these audiences mean nothing because they have... They have committed to a relationship, which is I follow your page, which is a very easy, relatively passive behavior to just click subscribe. And I will see things that you show me. It's a it's a very passive, one-sided relationship. But these people do not like you enough to pay money for what you do. You are like a distraction that gets shoved into their face and they'll, they'll they're like, fine. What is this? Some fucking cat eating a turnip? Sure, but the, but they're not gonna pay money. They don't give a shit. They want to. They want to go. They want if they're gonna pay money, they're gonna go to the theater and see a real movie. Um, and everybody, it was this collective like everybody just woke up to reality, and all these companies went out of business. They had just spent all this money acquiring content and had no subscriber base and. It was a total clusterfuck. And 
that was the primary issue. The primary issue was the the selling point of what they had to offer was not strong enough to guide viewers through the funnel and over the paywall. And what's really fascinating about and 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 there's this there's this concept in 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 um, digital marketing and and content distribution, which is these emotional charges that you can incite in people to get them to experience your content, get them to click on things, get them to click play, click on an article, go to your page, whatever. And it's all about emotional charges. It's all about how can you get this person in an emotional state to make them want to or need to see what you have to offer. And the one of those emotional charges is arousal. So how what, what is the arousal of, of, the, of the person, of the user, of the viewer? High arousal, low arousal, and you're, you're, you're trying to go for high arousal. You're trying to get them excited and sort of on the edge of their seat. And what is interesting about OnlyFans is that they solved the, the problem. They, 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 th- this, what OnlyFans is, is no different than what any of those SVOD services were conceptually. It's, it's a, it's an OTT service, a streaming service, an SVOD service where you pay money to get access to videos but they they just they were like nobody gives a fuck how well written this bullshit is like you can see naked pictures of your favorite celebrity there and that was the that was the solution that was what the that was what that whole year of billions of dollars spent and companies forged and hundreds of people hired that was the missing part of it. And one, and they, these people just did it and they were like, oh, yeah, you just, you just have to make it porn and it, and it works. <laughs> cut, cut to thousands of people laid off <laughs> and, and all these investors left holding the bag. It's just, it's so interesting to me. 